2 Kings chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 tonight. And the message is the secret of a successful life. The secret of a successful life. And it deals with past experiences. The past is an important part of what we do today and for making our plans for tomorrow. See, I can either let my past lie and I can move on in my life or I can let the past, the memories of my past, overpower me. Howard Hendricks says, you don't heal yesterday by not enjoying today. The past has to be more than a memory. It must be a ministry. Think about it. In a little less than five hours, tonight will be yesterday. What are you doing today to grow and to prepare for tomorrow? Think about it. What are you doing today to grow in the Lord so that you'll be ready for whatever tomorrow might bring? Jim Cimbala said, and remember that whatever your past may be, that God is more powerful than anybody's past, no matter how bad it is. He can make us forget, not by erasing our memory, but by taking the sting and paralyzing effect out of it. Joseph is a great example. Remember, Joseph had a terrible childhood, hated by his brothers, sold by his brother to slave traders. You know, went to a foreign country in a foreign land, away from his family, away from his friends. He went to jail twice, falsely accused. So he had a terrible, terrible, you know, past. But listen to what he said. We read that Joseph named his older son Manasseh. The name Manasseh means God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. He named his second son Ephraim because he said God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. Notice the key words, in this land of my grief. A lot of times when we go through difficult times and something has happened in our life that we just can't seem to, to handle, we want to leave that land of grief. We want to go. But Joseph became fruitful in his grief. Because you see, that's where you grow. That's where you learn faith and the power of God and the wonderful works of God. Now, there's nothing nothing wrong with our learning from the past as long as the past doesn't turn the present into a museum and the future into a cemetery. He said, is the past encouraging you or embalming you? Because if you concentrate on your past, you will rob yourself of a glorious future. You see, the people and the kings of Judah in our story tonight, they had a rich past. They had a wonderful past. And it was filled with God's accomplishment and God's guidance and God's commands. And many times we can go back, many, and and, and say, what a wonderful past I've had. You know, there's been accomplishments. God's been there. but, But with each generation in our story... Each generation that passed, they also had a long and growing list of calamities that came about in their life because the people forgot their God. The God who cared for them in the past also cared about them in the present and in the future, and he demanded their continued obedience. But it seems like many times when we go through something, 
it, it, it kind of gives us the feeling that we don't have to obey the word of God. And it seems to justify why I do the things that I do, why I make the decisions that I make. Hezekiah was one of the few kings of Judah who was always aware of what God had done in the past. And he was interested in the everyday events of life. And the Bible describes Hezekiah as a king who had a close relationship with God. Hezekiah was a reformer. And as a reformer, he was concerned most with the people's obedience at the moment. And Judah was filled with visual reminders of the people's lack of trust in God. And Hezekiah fearlessly cleaned house when he became king. Altars and idols and pagan temples were destroyed. Even the bronze serpent that Moses had made in the wilderness was destroyed. Because you see, it was no longer pointing people to God, but it had become an idol. The temple in Jerusalem, whose doors had been nailed shut by his father was cleaned out, and it was reopened. The Passover was instituted as a national holiday, and there was a revival in Judah. But even though Hezekiah had a, nature, a natural tendency to respond to present problems, his life didn't show much concern for the future. In other words, a lot of the things we do today in things that we're going through, trials and just disappointments, we don't think about how we handle the day and how it's going to affect us in the future. And it's important that we do that because, again, God does not react randomly in our life. He doesn't allow things in our life just because. He's got a purpose. And I think back in my life when Kathy and I were having marriage problems and we separated and for all practical purposes, we were going to get a divorce. And I thought, well, you know what, I'll just, I'll just leave town and I'll just start all over again. You know, I'll just start out fresh and new. That was, that was my thinking. I thought, that's the way I'm going to handle this. And then God said, no. You pray for your wife and you pray for my will to be done. And make a long story short, God, you know, in, in, in about a year's time, straightened it all out. And I think if I had done what I wanted to do, I wouldn't be married to Kathy today. I wouldn't have my two daughters today. I would have settled for second best. And right now, I have God's best. Because the things I did in the past made me a fruitful future. And that's what we're looking at here this, this, this evening. Hezekiah did not seem to do much or have much concern for the future. He didn't take any steps to make sure that the positive effects of his widespread reforms, the changes that he was making, were going to be preserved. His successful hard work made him proud. You see, he's not, he, he, he's not very smart. It's not, he didn't make a very smart move showing the nation's wealth to the Babylonian delegation. It only put, Babylon, put Judah on Babylon's hit list of the nations to conquer. When the Babylonians saw how wealthy the, the, uh, the nation was, because Hezekiah showed them all his wealth, they thought, hmm, let's put them down on our list as one of the nations to conquer. Again, what he did at that moment did not give him a fruitful future. When Isaiah told Hezekiah about the foolishness of what he did, Hezekiah's answer showed his continual lack of good sense. He was thankful 
that any evil consequences would be delayed until after he died. And then the lives of three kings who followed him, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, were greatly affected by both Hezekiah's accomplishments and his weaknesses. You see, the things that we do sometimes in our past at the moment will affect those that are around us in the future. So there are lessons to be learned here and mistakes to be avoided as well, to avoid repeating. Remember that part of the success of your past will be determined by what you do with it now and how well you use the now to prepare for the future. Now, the name Hezekiah means the Lord strengthens. And during his 29 years of, as being king, he needed God's strength to accomplish all that he did. Like Asa and Jehoshaphat and Josiah, King David was Hezekiah's model, meaning that even though he wasn't perfect, even though Hezekiah wasn't perfect, he did try to obey the Lord and to please him as we all should. Following Jesus' example when he said, for I always do those things that please him, speaking of his father. Hezekiah was one of the few kings who actually removed the high places and actually stopped idol worship in the hills. He restored the proper temple worship and he encouraged the people from Judah and Israel to come to the temple in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. The Lord had commanded that there should be one main place of worship, and that was at Jerusalem, Deuteronomy chapter 12. So let's begin now. We're going to read through verses 1 through 8 and see what it has to say to us. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he, re and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nahushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. It's great to hear about Hezekiah's life described here. After we have read about so many kings of Judah and Israel who did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Now, it seems strange that Hezekiah being brought up in such evil surroundings, that is, you know, in such a bad environment. How did Hezekiah turn out so well? Because you see, the odds were against him. His father was not at all a good example for developing religion in his son. But it was the same for Joseph and for Samuel and for Daniel and for Jesus. What this teaches is that even if we don't have good parents as a role model, or if we're brought up in a bad environment, or we're surrounded by evil, all of that might be an influence, but it's not a command. And many people will use those as excuses as to why I turned out the way that I did. 
Like I said, it may be an influence, but it's not a command. In other words, I still can say no to right and wrong and to bad and good behavior. And these men are great examples of that. And as parents, we need to be careful in the example that we set for our children. And the best help that parents can give their children to start life is with, a, is with godly training and a Christian example. God has given us as parents a huge responsibility to train our children well. Ephesians 6, 4. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath. My daughter's, one of my daughters, well, my daughter's favorite scripture. <laughs> Didn't pay attention much to the second one. But bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Listen to what it, now the parents' responsibility. Now you repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up. You see, much of their happiness depends upon the home life of their childhood and their youth. And it's very likely that King Hezekiah had a good mother. Hezekiah might have even been assigned to one of the, the priests that had stayed faithful to God in the midst of all the unfaithfulness and the idolatry and the sin that was going on around him. Uh, he might have been assigned to one of these priests to take care of him. Now, in verse 5, he singled out for a special praise. Notice what it says. We read that, notice, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor were before him. This was the secret of his victory. What's the result of anybody who will put their trust in the Lord and walk in his ways? Look at verse 7. The Lord was with him and he what prospered wherever he went. So the first thing that we see is that trusting in God leads to a personal religion. We should say relationship. Hezekiah's faith in God wasn't just empty words. Like it was with so many. You see, his belief wasn't made up of just a simple belief in or acknowledgement of some particular historical facts. His faith wasn't made up of some simple agreement to agree to some, some to certain doctrinal truths. It wasn't made up of performing a few simple rituals of certain outward forms and ceremonies. It was a real faith that existed through his whole life. Notice verse three. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Look at verse six. He held fast. He clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. You see, this is true religion. True religion is the dedication of the heart and the life to God. He held fast to the Lord. He held on to the Lord. Hezekiah set one great goal for himself at the very start of his life, and that is, I'm going to please God. No matter what it cost him, Hezekiah made up his mind that he was going to stay close to God. He was going to please God. He wasn't going to depart from God. And it's a great promise for young people to make. It's a real, it's a great goal to keep before you in life. But Hezekiah didn't just have a goal that he was shooting for. He also had a particular well laid out plan to reach that goal. He knew that if he was going to please God, he had better keep his commandments. 
obedience. Obedience is the key to your relationship with God, is the key to success in your life. Obedience. God wants obedience. He doesn't want my sacrifice. He doesn't want my empty words. He doesn't want my service. He wants obedience. Hezekiah didn't set up his own will and act against God's will, even though he was a king. He didn't question God's commands. You know, he, he didn't ask, you know, you know, like, hey, is this really, Lord, the, the wisest thing to do? Like we do many times. Oh, Lord, is this, is this really the best thing for me to do? Hezekiah felt that God knew the path of wisdom and duty a lot better than he did. And this is one of the best evidences of true faith. Of real trusting God, obeying his word. Now, we might not see the reason for what God tells us or for what he commands. But let's obey it anyway. I love what A.W. Tozer said. He said, true faith rests upon the character of God. God's character. He's holy. He's sinless. He, 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 he knows everything. He, he's, you know, he, he doesn't lie. He, he's perfect. So our faith rests upon the care of God and asks no further proof than the moral perfections of the one who cannot lie. It is enough that God said it. In other words, God says it should be all that we need. He says it is enough that God said it. And if the statement should contradict every one of the five senses and all the conclusions of logic as well, still the believer continues to believe. Oh, it goes against everything that is logical and sensible. If God said it, I believe it. I'm going to do it. Hey, a parent will give his child many, many instructions throughout his lifetime. And it might not always be necessary or even necessary that the child should know the reason. How many times did you hear this? Just do what I tell you. Why? Just do what I tell you. You don't need to know why. We do the same thing to God. Remember, I, I think it was the 60s or the early 70s. Remember the bumper sticker? You see it every once in a while, question authority. How well do you think that would work in our military? If the soldiers were to question every order that they were given. I found out real quick it doesn't work very well. When I was over in Vietnam and I disobeyed an order... I, got, I was going to be court-martialed. And I got, you know, a, a, a Article 15, which is just a write-up and, you know, unadaptable to military duty or whatever it was. I can't remember, but, it, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't go over well. Obedience based on faith is one of the most, is one of the first principles of life. It's basic. So you see, this was the beginning of Hezekiah's success in life. It started with the condition of his heart. He trusted in God, and that trust in God shaped his whole character, and character is the foundation of life. Secondly, trust in God leads to useful work. Hezekiah showed very quickly by his behavior that he was determined to serve God. And many times, you know, we, we go through something, we get, we, something happens, and, and, and we, just, we just drop out of serving God. We, we just don't. 
He didn't leave the people guessing about which side he was on. He wasn't a closet Christian. In the very first year, in the very first month that he was king, he opened the doors of the temple, which his father had closed, and he repaired them. And as soon as the temple was set in proper order, he made the priests and the Levites start the public service of God the right way and right away. Then in the second month of Hezekiah's reign, he gave a proclamation throughout all Israel and Judah, inviting the people to come to Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the house of the Lord. Man, what a time of rejoicing and celebration that was. And for seven days, they kept the feast of unleavened bread and the Levites and the priests praised the Lord every day. They were singing with loud instruments to the Lord. Peace offerings were made to the Lord. Sin was being confessed to the Lord. And the presence of the Lord was among this large congregation. And it was so obvious. Second Chronicles 30, 23 says the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. And they kept it another seven days with gladness. The, the feast originally went on for seven days, but they were being so blessed in the Lord. And the Lord was making himself known among them. They said, you know what? Let's keep this thing going. I haven't heard in a long time. Hey, let's 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 keep this thing going. We're always looking on, you know, you about over, Joe, you know. They wanted to go another week praising the Lord. Having that blessed fellowship with the presence of God. You see, the, the effect of the presence of God, the effect of the service was so exciting to them that when the Passover was originally finished, the people went out to all the cities of Judah. They broke down the pagan images in pieces. They cut down the groves, that is the trees where these, this idol worship was being made. They, they, they threw down the high places the, and the altars until they had totally destroyed all of them, verse 4 tells us. That was the effect of the service they had with the Lord, the presence of the Lord, the closeness to the Lord. You see, in all of this work of destroying the symbols of idolatry, Hezekiah took the lead. He led them in doing this. Even the bronze serpent that Moses made was destroyed. Now, if you remember the story, the bronze serpent had been made to heal the the Israelites when they were being bitten by the poisonous snakes in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21. Now, the bronze serpent was a reminder of God's wonderful deliverance and it showed God's presence and his power and it reminded the people of his mercy and his forgiveness. But unfortunately, it became an object of worship instead of a reminder of whom we are to worship. So Hezekiah was forced to destroy it. You see, we have to be careful that the things we use to help our worship don't become things that we worship. And most objects aren't made to be idols, but they become idols by the way people use them. They worshiped the bronze serpent. They burned incense to it. Instead of looking at it and being reminded, man, remember, remember when when God saved us from the poisonous snakes, from the bites of those snakes? Oh, the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God. That's what that bronze serpent should have done, was reminded about the good. Instead, they began to worship it. To praise it, to burn incense to it. And Hezekiah wasn't the kind of man that would destroy anything that would help true devotion. 
He encouraged the, the Levites to use the trumpets and the harp and the psaltery, which is a stringed instrument, to stir up and to stimulate the singing of the congregation and to give to God a sincere, wonderful service of praise. But Hezekiah saw that the bronze serpent had become an idol. And what it was doing, that it was leading the thoughts of the people away from the true and the living God instead of pointing them to the true and the living God. The serpent became a religious relic that had reached the status of an idol. And in order to deliver the people from this obsession, their obsession with it, with the bronze serpent and, and, and impress them with the idea of its worthlessness, Hezekiah called it Nehushtan. In contempt, he called it Nehushtan, which means, hey, people, it's just a thing of brass. It's a mere piece of brass. And how easy it is for human nature to want to honor religious relics. And I remember back in the day before I knew the Lord. And when I was going to Vietnam, my grandma, bless her heart, bought me a St. Jude medal. She had it blessed. I think St. Jude was the, the, the saint of, of protection. And because I was going overseas, she gave it to me. And, and because of the, the work that I did on, on jet engines and, and a lot of uh, power, um, high electrical um, charges in, in the engine, that were like, like a big igniter plug that would light the fuel in the engine, you got shocked by that or by any of the electrical in it, you could get hurt seriously. So we, we couldn't wear any jewelry. So I took, I, I, the only jewelry I had was like a watch and, and my St. Jude, you know, uh, necklace. I took off my watch, but I got caught wearing the, and so, make a long story short, they wanted me to take, I, I said, no way, I'm not taking this off. Once again, I'm getting hauled off to the first sergeant office and I almost got in trouble for that too. But I, it was, it was like, you know, something that was, that was, you know, I, I had made it something that was, I made it a God, you know, and, 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 and that's what we do many times to religious relics. And yet they have no power. Hezekiah was a man of faith who trusted in the living God and he followed God's law and he didn't want the people worshiping a dead and useless image. So what did he do? Verse 4 says he broke it into pieces. He's to be commended, applauded for destroying everything and anything that he become dishonoring to God. This shows us how God honors those who are determined to serve him and only him and how he blesses immediate, decisive action. Hezekiah could have been a little reluctant to do this. To take this drastic action to break down the altars and cut down the groves and demolish all the images. You know, he could have, been, you know, he could have said, well, you know, like Aaron. Well, you know, you know and, and the people might rebel. You know, and Aaron, Aaron was afraid of the people. Hezekiah could have done the same thing because the whole country was into idolatry. Hezekiah might have been afraid that it would cause a rebellion. And in some parts of the country, he didn't get a lot of support for his hard work in restoring the ancient old Jewish religion. And when the messengers who invited the people to the Passover uh, through the country of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Zebulon, the people there laughed at him. They laughed him to scorn and they mocked the people there. You see, these kind of reactions by the majority of the people might have caused Hezekiah to think twice about his decision. He says, you know, I'm a new king. I just took over. 
He might have thought, you know, I'm going to make these changes slowly and little by little so it won't be so obvious, it won't be so in your face. But he didn't. Because he knew the idolatry was wrong and it had to stop now. The worship of the true and the living God was right and it's always right and it must be started again now. Hezekiah was right in what he did. Because you see, if he would have started his reign by thinking, well, you know, I'm the new kid on the block. I better take it slow. If he would have tolerated idolatry for a little while, it would have been a lot harder for him to stop it later. Here's the lesson. If you see the right way to go or the right thing to do clearly pointed out to you, choose to walk in it now. Even though everybody might be against you. Follow the light that God has given you. No matter what happens. Besides, whatever work you see needs to be done, do it immediately. Promptness and decisiveness are two important basics for success in life. You know, if we wait to do things, it might be too late, too late and, and, and it, it won't be fruitful. That door might close. If you see that you need Jesus Christ, if you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, then come to him today. While you still can, because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You may never have a more convenient time than now to receive Jesus Christ. Because again, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Do you hear God calling to you? Do you hear God calling to to forgive somebody? Or to perform some act of kindness? Do it now. Do you hear the Lord calling you to some useful work in the church? Start doing it right away. If our trust in God is a real trust it will lead us not just to a personal relationship but also to a useful work and we can trust him to take care of us when we're doing his work the gospel of mark presents jesus as the servant of the lord that and he was sent to accomplish a specific work of god so it's a book of deeds more than words and doesn't it doesn't have any long discourses and it has just a few parables But in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, the word immediately is found 40 times showing the continuous activities of the servant. And what did Jesus say? I I came to serve and not to be served. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, notice, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Thirdly, trust in God leads to success in life. Look at verse 7 again. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. What great words to sum up a life. It's Hezekiah's experience that said here in just a couple of phrases. The Lord was with him and he prospered wherever he went. And that, that can be said of you as well. If we, like Hezekiah, fight our way to it. And not give up. Hezekiah's father was one of the worst kings that ever took the throne of Judah. And Hezekiah started his reign when the nation was depraved and degraded. Hezekiah struggled upward out of that darkness that covered the people. 
and he and he went into the clear light of fellowship with God. We can, too. We read that the Lord was with him. He had that divine companionship with God. The, now, the Lord is not far from any of us. But two people can be very near each other and still be so far from one another. And I and it happens a lot in marriage. I've dealt with it over the years. Two people can live in the same house for years and still feel so far from one another. It's possible, and sadly enough, the experience of a lot of us to be totally surrounded by his presence and still feel so far away from God. But understand, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's a sense that we have, it's a feeling. In reality, the Bible says the world can't contain him, so there's nowhere you can go where he's not there. So it's not that he's far away from you, it's that there's something wrong in your heart. Understand that his presence doesn't depend on our awareness that he's there. It isn't about feeling his presence. Thank God for that. But the blessing of his presence doesn't depend upon our knowing it. Job went through that in Job 23, 8 through 10. Job said, look, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he goes, he knows the way that I take. Yeah, I might not be able to see God or know where he's at, but he sees me and he knows where I'm at. How many of us go through life every day and never feel that bond with God? That he's standing by our side. Now, God's presence isn't removed by any worldly duties that we perform or people or occupation, but our awareness of his presence is interrupted by the worldliness of our hearts. Isaiah 59, 2 said, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. And see, it's not a problem with space. It's a problem with a spiritual thing in my heart. Hezekiah was victorious over his enemies. He broke the bondage of the king of Syria and he drove back the Philistines who had made great inroads during the previous king. And when the people honored God, their God honored them and he gave them victories over their enemies. As a reward for Hezekiah's faith and faithfulness, God gave him many riches and a lot of honor. Hezekiah had trusted God from the very beginning of his reign. He had done God's will, even though he did know what it might cost him. And even before he was established on the throne, he could have thought, you know, if I if I start, you know, you know, breaking down altars and images and stuff right now, he says, they're liable to boot me off the throne. But he didn't. Not knowing what it might cost him and knowing that, man, I've just I've just taken the throne. And God didn't disappoint His trust in God. But God made him greater and more honored than all the kings of Judah before or after him. You see, nobody ever loses by trusting God and doing what's right. In closing, Jesus promises that everyone who's willing to give up earthly possessions for his sake will receive a hundredfold more in this life and in the world to come everlasting life hezekiah's time as king shows us what protects us from the dangers of prosperity 
Verse 7 again said, the Lord was with him. You see, if you can say that, if you can say the Lord is with you, then there's no danger in prosperity because sometimes danger, prosperity can be dangerous to us because we get proud and arrogant. We pat ourselves on the back because of what we feel we've accomplished. But Genesis 39, 2 through 4, we read, the Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Notice, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. We read in Genesis 39, 23, the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. 1 Samuel 3, 19 through 20. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. 1 Samuel eighteen twelve. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. 1 Samuel eighteen fourteen. And David behaved wisely in all of his ways and the Lord was with him. Joshua 1, 8, 9. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. For the person that doesn't know God, Prosperity is often a curse because, I said, it makes one arrogant. It hardens their heart. It makes them think, I don't need God. Why do I need God? I have money. I have this. I have that. I have education. I have all. I don't need God. He thinks that he's rich. And he thinks that he has so much material stuff that he doesn't need anything or no one. But the prosperity of the Christian, on the other hand, may be a great blessing to himself and to other people. Take the presence of God, the fear of God, and the commandments of God with you wherever you go. Whether it's into your business or your relationships, into every plan that you make and every work that you take on, Take the presence of God with you. Then you don't have to be worried about success. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Put your eternal interest and hope into the hands of Christ. Jesus is worthy of your trust. And those who entrust themselves to Jesus will never perish. Trust in the Lord. That that trust may lead you to a personal relationship and to a useful work and to success in life. Father, we thank you for this great chapter, Lord, and Father, this great example that has been set before us, Lord. And Father, help us to learn from it, God. Lord, let it not just be more information or another Bible study, Lord. But God, may there be application and transformation as a result, God. Lord, help us to take care of today. Help us prepare today for tomorrow.
for us today will soon be the past. Help us to learn from the things that we go through today, Lord. Help us to understand, Father, that once again, nothing happens in my life accidentally or coincidentally or randomly. Your word tells us in Psalm 139 that my life has been fashioned, has been written out from even before I was born. And that being the case, even through the difficult time, I should rejoice because this is where God wants me to be. In His wisdom, He's allowed it to happen to me. He's put me in this place. I can't see it right now. I don't understand it right now. But one day I will look back and go, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You see, he's omniscient. He knows all things. Therefore, what he does in my life is based upon what he knows. Therefore, I need to trust his omniscience. And maybe you're here tonight and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never heard the gospel. You've never heard the Bible taught. You've never heard about the the true glory and goodness of God. We pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to God's word tonight. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship, a time of worship. And if God has spoken to your heart and you know, I need Christ. I need him in my life. I want to receive him. I want to make him my Lord and my Savior. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles toward the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.